Our sermon text this morning is from 1 John. Uh, we're going to go from 11 to 24. Um, and that's page 863 in your pew Bibles if, if you'd like to follow along. Love one another. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive, and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. It is a good thing for us to have a test of authenticity. A few weeks ago, I was watching a video where this guy had discovered a autographed picture of Babe Ruth in his elderly neighbor's attic. He was cleaning out the attic and he found this picture and he took it into a pawn shop to see what he could do with it. And the pawn shop owner, he had no idea whether this was real or not. And so they brought in an expert to check this photo out. This guy, he was a Babe Ruth autograph expert and he came in with his magnifying glass, looking at the thing, and and he said that you can tell whether this is real or not with a couple of tests. One, when Babe Ruth signs his name, the R in Ruth is always bigger than the B in Babe. And then he said his E's are a strange shape. They look more like an epsilon, the Greek letter, than they do a normal English letter E. He mentioned that forgeries often overlook that plea piece. They missed that, and that's how you can tell. And so after he examined this picture, he said he was certain that this was actually Babe Ruth's autograph. And that meant that this little piece of paper that he found was worth probably about $2,500. It is really useful to have a test of authenticity, to know if something is real. And that is what John has been talking about in this letter. He's been talking about how can we test the authenticity of Christian faith. And he's given us a couple of signs. Last week, we talked about the first sign. Do you remember? We talked about how our God has loved us in this astonishing, tremendous way that he has called us his children. And as a result, 
we, his children, should start to bear a family resemblance. We should start to live righteous lives that look like our Heavenly Father. That was the first test. And then the passage ended with this verse. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brothers. And so that brings us to the second test. The second test is, do we love others? The love of others is is one of those ways that we can look at someone and decide if they have an authentic faith in Christ, if they have an authentic relationship with Christ. And so as we look at this passage, there's a few things I want us to see. I want us to see, first of all, that the absence of love is poisonous, and it leads to death. Secondly, I want us to see that the presence of love, on the other hand, brings life. And finally, I want us to to wrap up by seeing that the love of Christ is what guarantees life for us, even when we fail. So the absence of love, love brings death. The presence of love brings life. And it's the love of Christ that secures it all for us. So let's talk about that. The absence of love, it brings death. That's where this passage starts off. If you've got your Bibles, you can read along with me. We've already read through the passage, but we're going to look a lot at the text this morning. Verse 11 says, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So John doesn't give us a lot of options here to start out with. He says either we can love one another, or we can be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, if you don't know what story he's talking about, he's Referring to way back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And we learn in that passage that both of them were instructed to bring a sacrifice to God. And it says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions. From some of the firstborn of the flock. And the Lord looked on favor at Abel's offering, but at Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. Now, in that story, Cain, he's the one that sinned first. He sinned by bringing this inadequate sacrifice to God. He brought him a sacrifice that essentially cost him nothing. But his anger. Instead of centering directly upon God, he set his sights on his brother and eventually killed him. And you might be thinking, as you as we read this passage in John, wait, wait a second. That seems kind of extreme. Those seem like very extreme options that either we love or 
we're murderers. You might be thinking, isn't there some kind of gray space between that? Either we love or we're murderers? It's not just something that sounds extreme. It is extreme. But it's true. Now, uh, some of you in this room are, how how did you guys put it? You're more experienced than I am in life. <laughs> Some of you have, 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 have seen more things than I have, and I admit that. But I am finally at that place in life where I can say, the closer I get to 40, that I'm not green anymore. You know, I've, I've seen some things in ministry. Some tough things. Some really hard things. And I can say, with certainty... That the absence of love is the most dangerous thing that can happen to a church. The absence of love. Nothing, nothing worse can happen to a congregation than that. And yet, way too often, we allow that very thing to happen. We let this little seed of unforgiveness get planted in our hearts and slowly start to grow into full-blooming hatred. And that hatred is a disaster for our souls and it is destructive for the people of God. And maybe as I'm talking about this, it seems far away. Maybe you think, No, you know, maybe, but not me. I would never do that. I'm not that kind of person. I don't hold hatred in my heart. That's somebody else. But it never starts out that way. It never starts out so blatantly. We never just say, I don't like that person's face, so I hate him. Right? It's always more subtle than that. It creeps into our hearts. When the first seed of hatred is planted, it always seems justified. It always begins with something like, that person mistreated me. They're the ones that have done me wrong. I didn't do anything to them. And that is what they did to me. It starts as a little thought in our head. And pretty quickly it grows into a wall between us. Maybe icy silence. Maybe some passive-aggressive behaviors. Maybe just distance. But then it It becomes a lens. It becomes the way we view every interaction that we have with that person. And pretty soon, we start to build up a record against them of all of these wrongs that we see them doing. All of these things that we are interpreting as being malicious, as being hostile. Slowly, that seed grows... And it starts to dominate our life. 
And while it doesn't usually end in literal murder, right, as, as, as this kind of hatred doesn't usually end in us actually killing people, I will say that I have seen plenty of people who have murdered their brothers and sisters in their hearts, their spouses, their friends, their family members. One pastor who I admire, he, he said it pretty clearly. He said, when you permit yourself to despise someone because you believe that they have wronged you, beware. The truth is, the person that is going to be killed by that is not them, it's you. Beware. If you start to allow that sin to fester and to grow in your life, you are the one who will be destroyed by it. And eventually, it's going to impact the people you love. It's going to impact the community that you're a part of, and it's going to bring destruction. John is... he. He says it really clear. He says, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a, what? Murderer. He's saying that the spirit of hatred and the spirit of murder are one and the same. And the threat to us, to you, is great. This is not abstract, folks. This is not far off. I don't want you thinking about other people as you're thinking. I want you to think about your own heart because this is the enemy's oldest trick and maybe his most successful one. We have to constantly guard ourselves against it. Constantly root it out of our life. Jesus taught about this and he said the exact same thing. In the Sermon on the Mount he said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. He says that anger and murder are the exact same things. And then he goes on to say, therefore... If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. He says, don't let that lie. Don't let those feelings fester in your soul. Do everything you can to stop it, to root it out, to cut it out immediately. Don't let yourself be consumed. When Cain murdered Abel, it began pretty simply. He looked at Abel's sacrifice and he said, he has done that to embarrass me. I feel shame and it's his fault. He built this narrative in his mind about why Abel was operating and how he was operating, and he killed him. But if you read the story, if you go back to Genesis, you see 
Cain was the one who was really destroyed by that moment. And generations that came after him. So before we get any further in this text, before we move on to point number two, I want you to just stop and think. Is there anyone in your life who you have allowed to become your enemy? Is there any resentment that you are allowing to brew in your heart? Is there somebody that maybe you need to go to them and ask them about their motives rather than assuming your story is the right one? Is there anybody who you need to go speak to and confess a hardened heart? I can't overstate it. I cannot overstate the seriousness of rooting this out of your life and out of our church. It will destroy us. The absence of love is poison. And it leads to death. The presence of love, on the other hand, brings life. This is the second thing I want us to see and and what John lifts up for us. We talked about the negative. He says anyone who does not love remains in death. But here's the positive. Again with verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. He says, the way that we can know that we really belong to Jesus, the way that we can have assurance right now that we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ is because we love other people. Do you remember that love? The love we talked about last week? That word, patapas, the the Greek word that means of what country? John says, of what country is this love? What kind of love is this? What great love is this? This idea that the love of God is something that's just not from around here. It's something we've never seen before. It's, it's bigger than the world's love. And that is the love that he has poured out on us. We were his enemies. And he brought us into his household. We were doomed, condemned to death by our sin. We deserved it. And he gave us eternal life in Jesus Christ. God's love is this unselfish love. This love that is unlike anything the world has ever seen. A love that makes no sense. And so, if we are a people who experience that love, if you and I are people who get to feel that love, receive that love, live in that love every single day, then, John says, We should also be a people who don't hesitate to show that love. To offer mercy and grace and kindness to other people all the time. People who are loved by God, love others. Loved 
people love others. Actually, let's say that together. Loved people love others. Loved people love others. Loved people love others. That's what John wants us to know. But what does that mean? How do we do that? Actually, before, before we figure out how we do it, let me just ask you, are you a loving person? You don't have to answer out loud. Just think about it. Are you a loving person? I bet most of us say yes. I think we're pretty easy on ourselves when it comes to this one. Right? Because most of us here, we'd say we're Christians. Maybe some of you are just checking things out. We're, we're, we're thankful you're here. But, but for those of us who are Christians in this room, you know, we're supposed to be loving. This is the most important commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, of course, we do that. But I think we're easy on ourselves when it comes to this commandment. I think when we ask if we love our neighbors, we kind of just think about how we feel about our neighbors. We imagine standing on the sidewalk in front of the church on a sunny day and looking at the park across the street and seeing people play and thinking about our neighborhood and we just say, oh, I love this place. I love my neighbors. I love my neighborhood. But love in Scripture, is not simply an emotion. Love in Scripture is not just a feeling. Love is an action. Think about when Paul is talking to married couples. Do you remember that famous passage in Ephesians where he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? What's he talking about there? He's not talking about romance. When he says, love your wives, he's not talking about simply an emotion. No, he says, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love is an action in Scripture. Love is the constant choice to count someone else's needs above your own. To submit your own needs and your own desires to theirs, for their benefit. And that's what John's saying here. It's the exact same thing. In fact, he makes it very concrete. Verse 17, he says, If anyone has material possessions, and he sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, before I say this next thing, I'm just going to preface it by saying I'm, I'm happy to be an evangelical Christian. I'm thankful for what that means. The, the, the word evangelical, it, it comes from the, the evangel, the good news. That means we are a people who value the word of God. We value the gospel. We value the good news. We exalt this book because it is holy. It is true. And I'm thankful for that. When I hear about people who go to churches that don't value the Word of God, who treat it like any other thing, I feel sorry for them. 
That being said, something that breaks my heart about being an evangelical is how in recent years it has become associated with people who are all talk. Especially in the United States. The evangelical church is known for being a group of people who talk a lot about loving the poor. But when push comes to shove, they care about themselves more. They preserve their own comfort. They act in their own best interests and give whatever's left. We're the church that takes missionary vacations. But we rarely give of ourselves in a costly way. And what about us? You know, we're thinking about the big picture church, but what about us? What about our church? Do we love our neighbors? A mentor friend of mine told me that it's not simply the church's job to serve the poor, but we are called to love the poor, to welcome the poor. And he said, the way you know that is when the poor are not simply the recipients of your mercy ministry, but they are being pastored and shepherded until they become the deacons, until they become the elders in your church. When we love our neighbors, we do a whole lot more than stand in the yard and think happy thoughts. We give of our time. We give of our money. We give of our energy. We give of our talent for their good. Even when we have nothing to gain from it, we sacrifice ourselves for others. So John, he starts off by telling us that, that hatred, when you carry it out to its most extreme, it ends in murder. And he shows us Cain as this primary example, showing us that the absence of love brings death. But then he tells us that love, carried out to its most extreme, is redemptive sacrifice. Say that, redemptive sacrifice. Redemptive sacrifice. And the example of that is Jesus, right? Verse 16, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So at the heart of our faith, it's not a law. At the heart of our faith, it's not an angry God who's wagging his finger saying, you need to love people more. No, it is a sacrificial Savior who has first loved us. The gospel tells us that actually we are the outcasts. We are the poor. We are the ones in need. And Jesus is the one who lacked nothing. The one who had everything and he gave it up for our sake. He came to earth and out of love he gave himself for us on the cross so that we could be redeemed. So that through repentance and faith we could actually be made righteous. We could have eternal life. We could live in his love forever. And so John tells us one easy test to see if you know that love, 
One easy test, one easy way to tell if that is a reality, if, if you are following a religion or whether you truly have a relationship with a living God where you're his beloved child, where he is your loving father, one way to see is it to ask yourself, do I love people? And you know, maybe don't just ask yourself. Maybe ask somebody else. See what they think. Ask the people you live with. Ask the people you work with. Do I love people? Ask what do they see? Is your life characterized by a desire to sacrifice your needs for someone else's? And not just the desire, but but do you actually do it? The absence of love brings death, but the presence of a sacrificial love in your life, just like Jesus, it brings resurrection life. It brings the life of Christ into the world. And that brings us to the third thing I want to say. Well, the third thing that John wants to say. The love of Christ guarantees life for us, even when we fail. The last few verses of this text actually take a kind of surprising turn. I don't know if you noticed, but so far, he has been telling us, uh, you need to look at yourself. If you want to find proof of your faith, you need to look at your life. You need to look at how you live. Are you righteous? Are you holy? Are you moral? Are you good? You need to look at your relationships. Do you love other people? Do other people see that in you? He says, look at yourself. Look at your life. But at the end, he says, and look at your heart. Verse 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, Let's just pause there for a second. He says, if our hearts condemn us, and if we're going with the flow, you might think it would say something like, if your hearts condemn us, well, well, then you're condemned. That's a great way to tell. Look at your heart, and if your heart says you're condemned, then you're condemned. But it's not what he says. In fact, he says the very opposite. He says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than us. He knows everything. Dear friends of our hearts, do not condemn us. We have confidence in God. And then he closes by saying, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Before I became a pastor, I spent some time in student ministry. And one of the tools that they gave us for student ministry was this little booklet that explains the basics of Christianity. It talks about sin, it talks about the cross, it talks about repenting. Uh, and then after all that, it has this page that says, now that you're a Christian, and it talks about finding a church and meeting other people who can lead you on the way. And there's a little diagram of a train. Has anybody ever seen this? The train has an engine, a middle car, and a caboose. And it says, fact, faith, feeling. 
And the point of this illustration is to tell us that you cannot live your life as a Christian letting your feelings drive you around. But the, the foundation of our faith is not our hearts. It's not our feelings. It's actually the fact of our salvation. It is the true and good and eternal and rock-solid promises that we have in God's Word. Amen. Fact, faith based on those facts, and then our feeling can follow that. See, the reason that diagram is, is actually really helpful in that book is because it's hard for us to believe this. Our hearts... They're always struggling to believe the good news of the gospel. Our hearts are always trying to reject the fact that we actually have been accepted in the presence of a holy God. It's hard for us to believe that God really does love us. Especially those days when we are just so aware of how far we come. How far we fall short of his standard. How unholy we really are. And some of us, I know, some of us are more sensitive than others. Some of you might spend all your time feeling condemned. All your time being anxious, worrying whether God really loves you or not. And it's easy to feel that way when you read passages like this that say, you should be holy and you should love people sacrificially. You should give your money. You should give your time. But John says something that I think is, is really encouraging. He says, If your heart condemns you for sin, that's actually a good sign. If your heart is condemning you, that's actually a good sign, not a bad one. Because it means the Spirit is at work. Amen. He says, If your heart condemns you, it means you don't need to worry if God has left you because He is right there. What you need to do is repent. What you need to do is come before the Lord in repentance and faith. Trusting in Christ. And then he says, if your heart doesn't condemn you, well, praise God, hallelujah. You also, you need to pray. You need to pray and ask God that his kingdom would come even more in your heart. Even more in this community. Because our hope, it's not in our works. It's not in how well we have loved people, but it is in God's Spirit, in His salvation. Our hope is in Jesus and how He has loved, not in our own love. See, our love is a tool. Our love shows Christ's love to the world. Our love shows other people how they too can receive Christ's love, how they can be a part of the love that we experience. And so today, uh, we have communion. And we're going to get to come to this table as we consider this message. And as we do, as I, uh, I go down there, I want to invite you to take a moment and really examine your heart. Look at your life. Ask God to show you those places where your love is all in your head. It's failed to become an action.
Ask him to show you where you may be letting resentment and bitterness build up in relationships in your life. And then as we come together, as we receive this meal, I want you to take this moment to receive love from God. To experience it. To believe it. To ask that He might transform you.